This afternoon, we will be looking at what we confess in Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So Lord's Day 6, and maybe I'll begin reading the last question and answer of of Lord's Day 5. It helps us to see the, the flow of thought in the Catechism. So Lord's Day 5, question and answer 15, what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is at the same time true God. That brings us to Lord's Day 6. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets, and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only Son. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, has the following ever happened to you before in your family? After supper one evening, dad opens up the Bible and he decides that the family, for once, should read from the book of 1 Chronicles. After all, been so long since they read it, it's high time they read it again. Well, he begins reading chapter 1 and proceeds to stumble over a list of Hebrew names. Names like Nebaioth, Adbeel, and Mibsam. That's part of chapter 1. Well, the next evening, it's the same. In fact, it's the same thing for the next Nine evenings, the first nine chapters of Chronicles. By day three already, Dad was wondering, maybe I should have picked a different book. And the kids are thinking, what's the point of all these names? This is so boring. And maybe the teenagers around the table are thinking, how is this in any way relevant to my life and the problems that I'm dealing with right now in my life. It doesn't seem to have any bearing on my life at all. Sounds reasonable. And I'll come back to this later on. 
But for now, I want to ask you, do you ever get bored reading the Bible? Or perhaps you wonder, if, if God took care through the Holy Spirit to inspire every page, why does some of it seem so irrelevant to me and my life? After all, it's not just that list of names. The Bible contains so many stories about things long ago, people from another culture and, and time. Some chapters just don't seem to hit home at all. Now, it's true, it might be easier to see the relevance of some parts of the Bible than others. It's true. However, if someone concludes that the Bible is largely irrelevant, they've missed something so important. They're not seeing the grand story that unfolds throughout Scripture. They're failing to see the magnitude of what God is revealing to us in the Bible. The Bible is God's story. It's the story of the world. And every page is a part of it. So in Scripture, God unfolds His marvelous plan to give us the perfect Savior. And that's essentially our theme this afternoon. And when we follow that story, then Scripture comes alive on every page. And we have two main points to the sermon this afternoon. First, God's plan to give us the perfect Savior. And second, the Savior fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that the Bible begins with creation. That's Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And Adam and Eve, they were the pinnacle of God's creation. What came right after? Of course, the fall into sin. Genesis 3 already. And we know the fall into sin, it left humanity devastated. God told Adam and Eve, if you eat from that tree, you are going to die. Well, Adam and Eve, they ate from that tree and they died. Not only did they die, but they brought death in this world to everyone. It spread throughout this world. That's the inheritance our first father gave us. Sin and death. What an inheritance. As you look around you, sin and death, they, they seem like unstoppable forces in this world. Just, just read the news. Search the internet. Scripture says all people are conceived and born in sin. We're inclined towards sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1 calls fallen humanity dead in trespasses and sins. Of course, God brought his curse upon fallen sinners. When you take a step back and survey that picture, what does it look like? It looks like salvation would be impossible. How could God save us? Look at the spot we placed ourselves in. After all, in order to find salvation, what do we need? We need a true and righteous man to step in our place. We need someone to bear the burden of God's wrath against our sins. We need someone to obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. How is that going to happen after the fall? It seems impossible. We need, first of all, a human Savior. He must be true man because of God's justice. The same human nature which has sinned must also pay for sin. Well, finding a true human is not difficult. 
What's the problem? He must be righteous without sin. A sinner cannot pay for the sins of others. We know that when it comes to money. No one who's deeply in debt can pay for someone else's debt. You know, if you're up to your your neck in credit card debt, and your friend says, here's my credit card, go ahead and use that. But the problem is, if if he has credit card debt, it's not going to help you, is it? Well, it's the same thing with sin. The problem is that everyone on earth is walking around with a massive debt over their neck, over their head of sin. It starts already when we're conceived. So again, salvation looks impossible. Psalm 143, verse 2. No one, is living, no one living is righteous before God. Or Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And again, there's that problem of God's wrath. Who could possibly bear God's wrath for one sinner? much less all the people in this church building, and much less the people of the world. Who can do that? One man can do that. Again, salvation seems impossible. But what also does Scripture continually say about our God? It says, with man, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's how God always reveals himself in his word. Is the arm of the Lord too short? No, it's not. See, where there doesn't seem to be a way, God makes a way. Right after the fall into sin, God came to Adam and Eve with the promise of the Savior. It was the first gospel. God revealed the gospel to Adam and Eve in paradise, as we saw from Lord's Day 6. What did he promise? He promised to give them a child who would crush Satan's head. Save them from their sin. It's the first gospel. Now in Genesis 3, God did not completely reveal how he was going to bring that Savior. He didn't tell us exactly what he would look like. He just gave us a sneak peek. But somehow... In some way, God would bring this true and righteous man to earth, someone who could possibly bear our sins, someone who could possibly restore to us righteousness in life. That's the the promise. And the rest of Scripture unfolds that great plan. It's the greatest story ever told. Read the Bible. I challenge you to Read it from cover to cover sometime. God did the impossible. See, all throughout Scripture, God shows nothing is impossible for Him. See, when God really kick-started His plan of salvation into high gear, who did He start with? He chose Abraham. A man who was already old. In fact, Romans 4 calls him a man who is as good as dead. 
And Sarah was well past the age of childbearing. Romans 4 says her womb was as good as dead. Yet God promised to give them a son. It was not impossible for him. And, and God did give him that son. In this way, too, God was proclaiming the gospel already to the patriarchs. He showed them his power to overcome death. He showed his power to make a way where there is no way. He gave them that child and, and descendants as numerous as the, as the sand on the seashore. I want you to think again of all those names in the first nine chapters of Chronicles. What's the point of such a long list of names? Well, every name is crying out that God is faithful. God promised to Abraham a man as good as dead that his descendants would become as numerous as the stars in the sky. And all those names testify that God is powerful and faithful to work salvation upon the earth. He's faithful to his promises. Can you see also how that's how that's relevant to a teenager's life who's struggling with the problems of life. It's not irrelevant. No. The God who is powerful to bring all those descendants out of that man, that old man Abraham, he's faithful so you can trust him. He's trustworthy, so you can trust him in your life, also as you're, you're dealing with all the brokenness of life as well. God is powerful. Those names testify to that. I can mention so many examples. Think of Joseph in prison. He suffered so much, seemed to have nothing, yet God made a way. He put him in charge of Egypt to provide food for the world. The world was blessed through the seed of Abraham. Think of David and Goliath. Victory seemed impossible again, but, but God is our strength. He's our salvation. Think about King Hezekiah, king of Judah. A huge Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem to attack it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem was completely closed in. No way of escape. Food is running out. Destruction seems inevitable. Yet it was not too hard for God. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and during the night, the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 men in the Assyrian army. What does God show on every page? Salvation comes from him. All the Bible shows us his plan. It's telling his story. And God did these things also for us, had them written down for our benefit that we here today in 2018 would learn to trust in him, trust his plan as well. He's mighty to save. And his promise also, beginning with Adam and Eve, to bring the perfect Savior would come true. It brings us to our second point. 
Of course, one day God finally brought his plan to fruition. The time had finally come. He sent the angel Gabriel to Mary. He announced to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And Mary asked, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, free from sin. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month of her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. There you have it again. Nothing impossible with God. God makes a way where there is no way. And finally in Christ, we we have the Savior we need. He was true man. He had his true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. And in Christ Jesus, God also brought a righteous man into the world. Finally, we have a child born without sin. That's the first time in the history of the world that that ever happened. Every single one of Adam and Eve's descendants were born in rebellion, but not Christ. And as he grew up, he fulfilled the law his entire life long. And he was born under the law and fulfilled the law to redeem us who had broken the law. When Jesus Christ began his ministry, he was first baptized by John in the Jordan River. John at first said, you know, I need to be baptized by you. Why, why would I baptize you? You need to baptize me. What did Christ say in response? It's necessary for me to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. See, that was his mission. That's what he set out to do. That's what he did. Right after that baptism, he went into the desert. He was tempted. The devil tempted him. Christ stood up to temptation. Also where we fall. We fall every day, don't we? Christ stood up to temptation, the righteous man. Not only that, but all throughout his life, he obeyed all the way to going to that cross to pay for our sins. That was his obedience. Because of that obedience, he rose from the dead. Proverbs 12, verse 28. In the path of righteousness and life, and in its pathway there is no death. That is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So believe in Him. He's the righteous one. We are not. But we have righteousness in Him. Of course, there's more. He was more than just a righteous man. We get hints of that throughout the Gospels. Look at what Jesus could do. Healed a man blind from birth, fed 5,000 people at one time with a few loaves and some fish. He raised people from the dead with one simple command. And he calmed the wind and the waves with only a rebuke. That is not the work of a mere man. It's showing he is the power of God. It's undeniably clear. 
And what do some people make of that? What do they try to say? They say that God's Son was only a powerful being created by God. Some say He was an angel. That's actually what the Jehovah Witnesses confess. They believe that Christ was the first created being and that Christ is to be identified with the archangel Michael in Scripture. Can we attribute God's or Christ's power to that of an angel? Well, no. Look at what we read from Hebrews 1. In fact, Hebrews 1 compares the Son of God to the angels. There the author says, Are not all ministers? Ministering spirits, the angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? No, they're in a different category to the Son. And the author of Hebrews, he makes pains to show that the Son of God was much more greater than, than the angels. Or to which of the angels did God say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father to him, he shall be to me a son. No, the Son of God is not an angel. He is God. Look at what we read from Hebrews 1 again. Listen to how Hebrews 1 describes the Son of God to us. It says that, that God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. Have you ever thought of that? See, the the Son was very much involved in the creation of the world. We tend to only think of God the Father when we think of creation, but we should think more. No, the Son was involved too. And that alone shows His divinity. The world was created through God. That includes the Son. There's more. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, the author says, The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The very essence of God is found in Jesus Christ. The very same power and mercy and justice and love and holiness that we see in God the Father, it's it's perfectly reflected, it's radiated out to us through Jesus Christ. That again, by itself, shows us Christ is divine. Christ could say in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. There's more in Hebrews 1. There it says, The Son of God upholds the universe by the word of His power. Upholds the universe. He upholds these walls. Every hair on your head. Every blade of grass outside. Every Cheerio that falls into your bowl of cereal. Every atom in the universe is upheld by the power of God. The power of the Son of God, I should say. Because that's true, consider this fact. The Son of God, while He was walking around this earth, even while He was united to His infant human nature in His mother's womb, He was upholding the universe by the power of His Word. Even when He was tiny zygote in his mother's womb. Think about that. If that does not convince someone that Jesus Christ is truly God, 
and I don't know what will. But I could go on, Hebrews 1 again. When God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Worship him. He is God. Hebrews 1 verse 10, this verse shows us the divinity of the Son by quoting from Psalm 102. Right before he quotes from Psalm 102, the author says that God spoke the words of Psalm 102 about the Son. And this is the quotation in Hebrews 1. There it says, You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. You are the same, and your years will have no end. Hebrews 1 says that's talking about the Son of God. Surely he is divine. The power of creation, he is eternal. That is the Son of God. And that makes him the perfect Savior we need. You understand, he came to this earth to save us. And by his divine nature, he, he had the power to bear in his human nature the wrath of God against your sin. And by his divine nature, he has surely obtained for us and restored to us righteousness and life. Believe it. He has the power to give us the life we lost in Adam, and he does. He gives us eternal life. See, God in Scripture shows us that he has brought us the perfect Savior. Nothing is impossible for God. Savior is our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is that mediator? Question answer 18. The answer is our Lord Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Truly, Christ is our righteousness. That can make you confident also as you come before the Lord. You're dressed in his righteousness made purification for our sins. It's through faith in Him that we are saved. You can now know that you're accepted by God through that, through that saving work of that perfect, unblemished Savior. When you read Scripture, read it in light of Christ. See, God is unfolding His marvelous plan that centers on His Son. And why do you think Hebrews 1 contains so many quotations from the Old Testament? There's no less than seven Old Testament quotations there in Hebrews 1. The Holy Spirit is showing us that, that God has been building to this one person and He's been revealing to us slowly over time, over every page, that Christ is the one. The plan of the ages reaches its fulfillment in him and salvation is in him. Don't miss out on that as you read scripture. Read it in light of Christ. Since Jesus Christ is this powerful savior, 
Is it any wonder that salvation is in Him alone? Why would we seek another one? We cannot find a more complete Savior than He. Hebrews 1 says that all God's angels are to worship Him. Remember, not only them, but let us also too worship Him and our triune God for the salvation He has given us. Amen.